And we're going to be looking at parables prophesy the basic spiritual dynamics of the period that we're living in right now between uh, the event where Judaism officially rejected Christ until his second advent when he will reappear visibly, supernaturally, undeniably. And that's something that we need to be uh, passionately looking forward to. It's a major motivator. And he'll talk about that himself. Jesus will talk about his second advent in detail in what we're going to call letter V, like in victory, victorious, uh, what do I call it, vision of victory, where in Matthew 24 and 25, that's the book of Revelation in two chapters. If you don't want to read 21 chapters, you can read the book of Revelation in two chapters, Matthew 24 and 25. So we're living in this period, and Jesus is going to tell us kind of what you need to know at a basic level to for, for Zach uh, to kind of walk with a realistic expectation about the way things are spiritually in the world till Jesus comes back. Now, in this passage, Lord, the Lord's going to use parables. And parables uh, are earthly stories with heavenly meanings. Or you could say they're physical stories with spiritual meanings. And... Uh, just to test your uh, awareness of geographical shapes, uh, Anthony is a uh, very talented graphic designer. So what would you call that shape, Anthony? Square. So good. What would you call that one? Great. What would you call that one? Okay, now it's going to get a little trickier. What do you call that one? So good. We didn't even, we didn't even practice. Yeah, that's a parallelogram, right? Those... That line AD and BC are parallel and DC and AB are parallel. We're looking at parables. The original New Testament word that Matthew wrote in his gospel wasn't parables, parabole. Parallel lines are laid alongside one another, not like that. But Jamie, look, parallel lines are like that. That's not a parallel line, right? That's an intersecting line. So para means alongside. Parallel lines are lines that are alongside going in the same direction, right? Bole, we get ballistics from this, means to throw or to place. So parable, parabole, made up of para and bole, mean Jesus is laying aside really important spiritual truths that you need to know uh, alongside physical stories that would have especially resonated with uh, his first century audience and that equally can resonate with us and should. So that's what we're going to try to do today. But before we do that, let's pray that we'll be teachable to God's Word. You know, we're doing exposition of Scripture up here. That's not currently in vogue. A lot of people want chicken McNuggets, not kind of steamed rice and uh, baked chicken without the skin on, but it's a lot healthier for you in the long term. They'll never outcompete McDonald's, but uh, that's uh, not necessarily good for us. But as believers, uh, we all love Jesus enough to be able to listen to the scripture for almost 50 minutes on Sundays. I don't think that's too much to ask. Point of no return. But let's pray we'll be teachable. This won't be about the teacher. It'll be about the text. And my goal is this. You'll be able to read these 52 verses, if you can believe that, in 45 or 50 minutes from now and know what they mean. And then move that information from your head to your heart. And it'll be the whole basis of your worldview, your priorities. That kind of thing over time. It works. It's worked for 2,000 years. I'm quite sure it still works today in postmodern America. 
But uh, in addition to praying for teachability for all of us, including me, let's pray for our troops, our uh, peace officers, and our firefighters. And uh, Doug, strange, pray for us in that direction, please. Thank you, Doug. Abstract thought warmer upper for today. Um, you know, I've been a, a preacher. I'm not really crazy about that term. I'd rather be called a Bible teaching pastor, but you can call me whatever you want to. Just don't call me late for lunch. But, um, you know, 30 years here, six and a half in Shreveport, 36 and a half years. And so the longer, um, I do this, the more disappointed I am in, in some high profile preachers. I won't mention any names. Joel Olstein comes to mind. Um, 80% of what he's saying is not biblical. It's wildly popular. And, but my, and you know, if I, I would love to meet Joel, I don't hate him. I don't despise him. I just disagree with him. I don't resent his success. I really don't. I'm not, based on what I've learned about dynamics in this passage, I know that kind of thing's going to sell, going to, going to attract a following. But, uh, I'd love to say, hey man, stop making yourself the hero of all your illustrations. My, my number one pet peeve with, with pulpit ministers are people that always make themselves the heroes of their, their, uh, illustrations. Now I realize, I don't, I try not to do that very often. Now recently on Wednesday night I bragged about uh, mowing my neighbor's yard. So I, you know, I apologize about that. But I thought it made sense at the time. But here's kind of my unique approach toward, uh, uh the pulpit ministry. Um, I like to share some of my worst moments with you. Uh, most of you have heard about a month ago I was trying to change a light bulb in our bathroom, Jason, and I broke our toilet. <laughs> and it's too long to explain, but I wasn't standing on the toilet. I'm too smart to stand on the toilet. I managed to break it another way. <laughs> now, this was a killer. Nobody, everybody was too nice to, to react negatively when I said this, okay, uh, Scarlet, but uh, several weeks ago when we were doing in nature neutralized, Jesus doing miracles to prove who he was, we talked about the Lord and the leper, and I started that uh, message by saying, hey, lepers in the Old Testament, uh, Old Testament Israel were kind of like outcasts or the untouchables in Hinduism. Uh, Hinduism has four spiritual and social groups, and then it's got a group that's so messed up spiritually according to their theology about their bad karma, they don't even belong to a caste. And I said, Caste, you know, it sounds like, it has a different meaning, but caste sounds like the thing, and this is exactly what I said, caste sounds like the thing a doctor puts on your arm when you break your leg. <laughs> I said that within the first couple minutes, and nobody reacted, which made me, made me think, were they listening? But no. Uh, I think you tend to hear what you expect to hear, and I intended to say it's what a doctor puts on your arm when you break your arm, but I didn't quite say that. So, and Joe Olstein doesn't do that because if he does that, they make all fifty thousand people come back, and he does it again. You know, I'm kidding about him. Here's another one, okay? And out of the goodness of her heart, and Ron would have done it again. He did it like a year ago, but it is a hassle. It's just a lot of work, a lot of detail work. Out of the goodness of our heart, uh, Wendy, you know, recently came up with an up-to-date TBF directory. And, you know, it's, it's impossible to get it all right because people, we're going to leave you in there even after you're gone for a while, okay? So it's, it's a changing thing, a moving target. But anyway, um, first two Sundays and Wednesday at the beginning of teaching time, not after worship, beginning teaching time, Henry, I passed out the directory. You remember that? 
and said, please, everybody, look at this and correct your data. If you've got the phone number wrong, we locked your kid out, uh, you got your email wrong, please change it. So I did that two weeks in a row on that, that way on purpose to make it impossible for anybody not to do it. Then the fifth, uh, the sixteenth of the month, Sunday, I was in Beaumont for my sister's wedding. I asked James when he spoke to the same thing, so he passed it around. Then, then the next, and Wendy wanted it that next Wednesday, but I said, "No, let's go one more time. I want to make sure everybody gets multiple accesses to it, though, so nobody will have an excuse, right, Dennis?" And I was so proud of myself for doing that and kind of forcing you to do the right thing. And then uh, my wife noticed I didn't check our email addresses. Uh, you know, I mean, sometimes you just don't practice what you preach, do you? Um, uh, I would love to use uh, B. McCoy at tbfduncan.org, but it stopped working about eight years ago, and our webmaster at the time couldn't fix it, and I looked up some things, and I couldn't fix it, and since I didn't want to spend more than 27 hours trying to fix that, I just punted to my Cameron address, which is not to impress you because I teach at Cameron, but it's just bmccoy at cameron.edu. I check that all day long, every day. Just about, unless I don't return one of your emails and I didn't check it, but uh, that's that. Uh, technically, BD McCoy Cable 1 still works, but we don't use that. We use bdmccoy16 at gmail.com. I should have checked that, like I told you to do, and I didn't do it. Uh, and I apologize, but I mean, I would rather try to let you know I don't think I'm perfect than to try to brag about me mowing my neighbor's yard. But that's just me, okay? Uh, yeah. Let's look at these parables, okay, and say a word about the way they're organized on the page in your Bible. Since I just stopped the jokes, I can officially start the clock, 45-minute clock. It's like uh, these college football games, they're not football games. They're TV shows. You have 60 minutes of game time, and at 180 minutes, uh, you have 60 minutes of game time, 180 minutes of television commercials, like last night. Okay, it took like 10 years off of my life getting that victory out of that situation. It was not easy. You think the players were tired when the game was over? I was whipped, man. You kidding? Now, and I can just give you a simple list like that, but the problem with that, it oversimplifies something so it distorts it. This is the list you want because this just walks verse by verse and shows you what happens. The parables, eight of them, they're earthly stories with heavenly meanings, right? Right, Peg? That's what they are. There's eight of them there in bold, and then there's other things going on too, so we're going to keep that in mind as we go through there. But if you want to simplify it, I typically like umbrella designs where you have an overarching thing and then subordinate things, and so we could have done it. The first two, there's eight parables there, but think about it this way. There are two sets of tw- four sets of twins, <laughs> right? And the first set of twins are more important. And I know a lot about twins. I know two of them intimately, two sets of them. Uh, could have done it like that, but I ended up with this, which is just supposed to show you the relationship. The sow and the soils and the wheat and the weeds are really the big ideas, and these others are kind of subordinate related ideas, okay? So that's where we're going to look at that. Now, we have the Big 12 Conference with only 10 teams in it. If that was in the Bible, they said that was an error. It's not, Carol. It's not an error. It's a technical term. Big 12 means the conference OU and OSU's in it, and it only has 10 teams. The Big 10 in the Midwest has 12 teams. And uh, But long before we had the Big 12, we had the Big 8. So people used to know that. So I, you always called these the Big 8, and it made sense. But there's no, there's no, there's no Big 8 conference anymore. Slow down, Brad. Don't get too excited. Okay? So anyway, the point is we're going to look at truth about 
the situation on the ground right now that you've got to live in in Marlow, in Marlow High School, I've got to live in in my uh, retirement uh, village soon. And uh, we're going to start, and, and remember, this is being done right after O, right after the leaders of institutional Judaism say, no, pay no attention to him, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. He does miracles, but he does them through satanic power. So in response to that official rejection, which is going to trickle down and affect everybody else's thinking about Jesus, he starts teaching in parables, and we're going to walk through this uh, passage fairly quickly, so listen fast, but I'll try to slow down a little bit. But we're going to start not in verse 1, but in verse 10. How come? Because the structure. In verses 10 through 17, he's going to tell you his purpose for teaching in parables. So let's look at that first, so we'll know what he, the Lord's trying to do here. I think it would be helpful. So look at verse 10 of Matthew 13. And the disciples came privately to him in the boat they're sitting in, right after he tells the uh, parable of the sower and the seeds. Uh, and they say, he says, why, why are you speaking to them in parables? We know that you mean something beyond you know th- throwing technique for seed. We know there's something in there. Why are you doing that? And Jesus says, to you, and that's plural, that's all y'all, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom. If you really want it, you'll be able to figure it out, and I'll help you. But to them, the crowd that is hearing he's satanically possessed and they're not sure they buy him anymore, it's not been granted. For whoever has to him shall more be given. You may not, I don't put all my cookies on the bottom shelf. I put some on the bottom, some on the top, and stratify it on purpose. So wherever you are, this is a, this is like spiritual aerobics for you, okay? You can make progress. You can think through the scripture, and you better be able to think through the scripture, because Oprah's not going to tell you about it, okay? So, if you have a lot, you can get more. Whoever doesn't have, and doesn't want it, whatever enlightenment they've got will be solely whittled away. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, earthly stories with heavenly meanings that you got to think about. you got to really want to understand, and you got to embrace not what is your head but your heart, because while seeing, they do not see, and while hearing, they don't understand. Why would he want some people not to understand what he's saying? Because now that they've decided he's a satanically possessed false prophet, everything he says and does can and will be used against him because he's, look at the satanic prophet. He's drawing a crowd. He's doing miracles. He's just promoting the uh, agenda of Satan. Uh, for in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah 6-9 is being fulfilled, which says, you'll keep on hearing, but you won't understand. You'll keep on seeing the incarnation of God, but you won't receive him. You'll vilify him. You'll reject him. For the heart of those people has become dull. With their ears, they scarcely hear because they have closed their eyes. It's on them. It's not God's fault. Um, here, uh, because they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes. They could understand these parables. They would hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return, and I would heal them. But blessed are your disciples' ears because they, uh, I said ears, and they'll hear. Oh, great. That's like the cast with the arm and the leg again. Blessed are your eyes because they see. And it's just so kind for him to say that, because they're not going to understand very much of this the first time through, as we're going to see. And your ears, because they hear. For truly I say to you that 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for sure, but Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zephaniah, all would have loved to be in this situation watching me do my thing. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see, didn't see it. They had promises. They didn't have the provision. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So he's teaching in parables for a purpose. If you really want it, you can understand it. If you don't, you won't understand it enough to use it against him and to further cause yourself problems, right? That's the kind of thing. Now, drop down to verse 1, or drop back to verse 1. We'll look at his purpose for teaching the parables. Now, let's look at the eight parables. That day, Jesus went out of the house, his house in Capernaum. We'll, we'll see it. He's probably living with Simon Peter. They found Simon Peter's house in Capernaum. There's archaeology there. We can show that to you. But what day? The same day the leaders of Judaism say he's a satanically possessed false prophet. Okay? So that day, everything changes. The crowds don't totally go away yet, but they've got big question marks. They're not teachable anymore. They're pretty sure that their leaders aren't... Maybe Jesus isn't as bad as they say, but he can't be the savior that they thought he'd be. Uh, that day Jesus went out of the house that he lived in in Capernaum, which is right on the Sea of Galilee there, and uh, was sitting by the sea, the lake called the Sea of Galilee. And large crowds, he still got has crowds. This is just the very beginning of this, but they're going to start trickle, trickling down and going away, and the disciples are going to weep big tears because their market share gets smaller. And that's the most important thing, getting big market share, right? A large crowd gathered to him, so he got into a boat and sat down, which gives you great uh, acoustics in certain parts of that section of the lake, as you'll see if you go with us in May. And the whole crowd was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables, eight specific parables. But here's the first one, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow, and he just kind of threw out the seed on the ground. And as he sowed, some of the seeds fell beside the road. Let's call that rocky soil. Uh, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell on, I mean, let's not call it rocky, since he calls the rocky the second one. Let's call that roadie soil. Let's do it that way. That's roadie soil. Others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much depth of soil. Let's call that thin. That's thin soil. Okay. And immediately they sprang up. Regener- I'm going to say regeneration. Germination happened. But they had no depth of soil, so they weren't able to stay viable enough to ever produce any kind of fruit, even unripe fruit. But when the sun came up, it was scorched. Others, verse 7, fell among the thorns. Let's call that thorny soil. So we've got roadie soil, thin soil, thorny soil. Uh, and thorns came up along with the growth of the wheat here and eventually choked them out so they have no fully mature fruit. But others fell on good soil. You want to have good soil in your heart, and it's, that's between you and the Holy Spirit. James can't do that for teenagers. I can't do that for any of you. If I could, I would, but I can't. Others fell among the thorns. Thorns choked it out. Others fell on good soil and yielded a crop. And even there, you have different levels of productivity, faithfulness, and fruitfulness. Uh, some 100-fold, some 60, some 30. And if you think it's only pastors and youth ministers are going to get a lot of uh, reward for our fruitfulness, it's going to be more people like, uh, I don't know, Janice Skinner, Carol Wanzer, uh, Jenny Heath, people like that. Maybe David Demerson in there a few places. Um, we have a special opportunities as called to ministry. You guys have other ministries and other opportunities that may be more strategic in the way our culture is right now, to tell you the truth. And then he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So that's 
the parable. Let's move to the next parable. Now, let's not move to the next parable. Let's drop down to verse 18. Why are we jumping again, Brad? Because verses 18 through 23 is where Jesus explains the parable. So that'd be a good thing for us to look at, I think, before we move to other parables. Now, let me tell you something. This is truth in advertising. Um, I'm going to preach my convictions on what these parables mean and, and realize that within the evangelical tent, evangelical is the word that means gospel, and the gospel is the fact that Christ died for our sins and rose again, and Christians that believe that that's the core of Christianity, whether it doesn't matter what color, uh, country, denomination, generation you are, people who see that as the core of Christianity, that Christ died for our sins and rose again, it's about eternal life, not just life now, even though it is relevant to life right now. Those are called evangelicals. There are at least three major ways evangelical people, good, born-again folks, interpret this first parable, and there's differences in our tent between the specifics of all these parables. But let me just survey the three major ways that the parable of the sower, sower uh, soils is, is interpreted. Uh, one view is that only soil four, we called that the good soil. Remember we had uh, uh, ruddy soil, uh, thin or rocky soil, thorny soil, and good soil. Uh, some people take only that four soil as being a real regenerate, born-again person, and the other ones are not really saved. That's one way to do it. Uh, the second, and John MacArthur is one that holds that position, so we all respect him. Uh, evangelical view two is that only the third and the fourth soil, the uh, thorny soil and the good soil, are seen as regenerate believers, and the first two really were never really saved. They just pretend to be or had a superficial re- emotional reaction to something. And that's because Mark and Luke, not the Matthew account, emphasize that that third soil produces fruit, but not fully ripe fruit, because they're seeing fruit, and they're focusing on fruit. And, and by the way, Chuck Swindoll, some of you have heard that. He was president of Dallas Seminary for several years. He holds that view, that the first two soils on the road and the, uh, the the rocky or the thin soil aren't really believers, but the third and fourth one really are. And if you want to be right, now uh, my my view after thinking about it for a long time is that rather than keying on the, the fruit, how about let's focus on germination, life, and some kind of growth, whether it get mature. I'm not sure the thief on the cross produced a lot of mature fruit. You know, he wasn't in position, you know, to go door to door and do things like that. And so, but here's my thing. Uh, you know, when we talk about issues where evangelicals disagree, I usually go out of my way to uh, kindly summarize the other views before I preach my convictions. i got to preach my convictions, not somebody else's. And for sure, you can say when I'm gone, he didn't just do a commentary on people's commentaries or his favorite commentator. I don't do that. I do the text, the text, the text, and then as a tertiary thing, I look at the commentaries, and sometimes I'm completely wrong on what I thought the text meant, but not too often anymore, because I've already made enough mistakes to cancel that out. But um, TBF is a weird place. You can be a, a staunch Calvinist here, and we're going to love you anyway. Okay. You're going to staunch Armenian... You can even be a Democrat. We're going to love you anyway. It's not about all that stuff. We focus on the absolute irreducible minimums. If you don't remember what those are, come next week and we'll 
Weather permitting, we'll do it at Julie's house. Otherwise, we'll do it here. But I won't preach anybody's commentaries, but I will preach some certain really good journal articles. Uh, like that one. And I've done a, I've done a lot of thinking on this. Uh, I don't want to debate this with you. If you want to hold one of the other views, that's okay. You might even be right. But let me just read this and tell you what I think it, it actually is meaning here in context. Uh, look at verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. I like to call it the parable of the soils, but I told James the other day, I better call it what the Lord called it. He calls it the sower, so we're going to call it the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand, does not grasp it, it's a willful thing, not an IQ thing. It's a spiritual IQ thing. The evil one comes, as it were, and snatches away what's been sown in his heart. This is the one whose seed was sown beside the road. Okay, No germination. In Luke 8, 12, which is a parallel passage, he points out that this this kind of uh, soil represents people uh, that do not believe and aren't saved. He seems to be making a clear distinction between the first one and the next three, and that's that's big, in my opinion. If you go to Bible.org, which is a great site, uh, after talking about the uh, how easily this would have been understood to that culture, because I saw people sow like that all the time. We use more. Uh, mechanical means to sow stuff now. But also, he points out in Bible.org under Constable's notes, the use of seed germinating as a figure has Old Testament roots. And he goes back to Isaiah 55, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, not heaven where God lives, but the, the heaven, the atmospheric heaven, and do not return there. Seems to know about the water cycle long before science figured it out. Without watering the earth, and making seeds live and sprout. I see the germination of the seed in 2, 3, and 4 as regeneration with varying levels of results. Now, I realize you can find people who have walked in the aisle, signed the card, had an emotional experience, pretend to be Christian, seem to be a Christian, and then they uh, fail the adversity test because they never were born again. You can find anecdotal examples of that. You can find folks that walk in the aisle, sign a card, join something, quit something, think they're saved, everybody thinks they're saved, then they get rich and famous and they're too important to take Christ seriously very much anymore. That happens all the time, but I'm not going to read that into this. I'm seeing germination as regeneration, and so let's keep going with that premise. Look at verses 20 and 21. Look at the thin soil. Uh, but the one, the person represented by the seed that was sown on the rocky places, that's soil two. Uh, the thin soil, this is the, the person who hears the word and immediately receives it with kara. That's joy. That's part of the fruit of the Spirit. There's a lot of Greek words that have lesser intensity. That's the intense term that means the kind of joy you get from salvation. But that person doesn't have deep roots and only temporarily really has a lot of outward, uh, visible evidence of their faith. And eventually falls away from displaying it much, if at all. That may be temporary. Sometimes people do that as a period and come right back. Number 22, verse 22. Sound like President Trump. Number 22 to 2 Corinthians, right? This is 1 Matthew. Uh, the one whom the seed was sown among the thorns, the thorny soil, Savannah, this is thorny soil. So you've got uh, competition with their spiritual dynamics. They're focusing on uh, you know, piano lessons and stuff like that. I'm all for piano lessons. I wish I had taken piano lessons. My mom didn't love me enough to force me to go piano lessons, so I can't play the piano. I can't play, you know, a CD. 
of somebody playing the piano, but I can't play the piano. But I got, I told, I told them this during the height of our softball mania when we were maniacs about softball. And we did win the championship twice in a row, by the way. Even then, and I loved it. I loved it as much as anybody. Um, could you tell? Uh, I really want to win those games. As long as we keep in score, we got to try to win. That's what I said. But especially if it's uh, Knights of Columbus or Emmanuel. We really wanted to beat them. But I always said, hey, the most important softball game isn't as important as the least important prayer meeting. Because we'd play on Tuesday nights, and we'd have 15 when we really were really rocking and rolling. And some weeks you'd only have three show up the next night. And I noticed that. Now, I don't have enough information to legitimately second-guess anybody. They may have had work come up, family crisis, something. But I know enough about statistics to know not all 12 of those guys didn't show up had that happen that night. It's just softball is more important than the prayer meeting. And I think that's not a good thing. As a pastor, I had to say that. I didn't think it affected them very much, but I, I gave it my best shot, right? Yeah. In Luke 8, 4, talking about this thorny soil where you have competing interests that kind of drowns out their joy, he says they bring no mature fruit. And in fact, the uh, Net Bible, which I know Steve knows about, their fruit does not mature. They have fruit, but it never fully matures. And then obviously verse 23 is talking about the ideal case where they're not just regenerate, but they're in the Word, they're abiding in Christ, they're producing consistent fruit over the totality of their Christian life. And that's what you want to be. So let's sum up that first parable. The kingdom of God on earth until Jesus comes back will be characterized by a worldwide sowing of the truth of God's word met with varying responses, which is an occupational hazard for people like me. Because it's it's heartbreaking to see how some people deprioritize the word and when we got a whole evangelical culture that is about market share and about dumbing it down, uh, you know that uh, things are not good in Mudville, as they used to say. Now, let's go to parable two, which is the fraternal twin of this first one. It's the wheat and the weeds. I know it says wheat and the tares, but you don't know what tares are. And neither do I. I don't use that term anymore. So let's look at the wheat and the weeds. Look at verse 24. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, the kingdom of God on earth until I come back, now that the Jewish leaders have rejected me, may be compared to a man who sows good seed. There's nothing wrong with the seed here in either one of these parables. But while his men were sleeping, his hired hands, his enemy came and sowed tares, weeds, darnels, that actually looked like wheat for much of the growing process until the very end. Uh, among the wheat, and then they went away. And then there's a the time gap. And then when the wheat starts sprouting, it's all germinating and sprouting, it's really wheat, but alongside of it there's weeds, there's darnels, um, and it bore grain. Then the, the tares, the darnels became evident also. And the slaves, the workers, servants of the house owners said, hey, you want us to kind of pull up all the weeds right now? He said, no, if you do that, you're going to destroy the whole crop. Let's let the crop grow to, futi- to totality, then we'll be able to easily separate the good stuff from the bad stuff. And I wonder what he's talking about there. Let's see what he says about what he's talking about there. Drop down to verse 34. Why are we jumping around, Brad? Because of the structure of the passage. That's why. All these things up to that point, Jesus spoke to the crowds from that boat in those parables and didn't speak that day anything but parables. And that was to fulfill Psalm 78, verse 2, verse 36. Then when he left the crowds and went back into the house in Capernaum, his disciples said, explain the parable of the terrors. Tell us what, what did that one mean? You know, they don't understand any of them, really, but uh, they want to know that one because it has such a great ending. 
And he said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. That's me. The field's the world. As for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. The wheat are sons of the kingdom growing. And the tares, the weeds, are the sons of the evil one, unbelievers. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age. The end of the age isn't the isn't Revelation twenty one twenty two yet, Matthew, uh, Matthew, Andrew. Uh, it's second coming of Christ. It's, it's Revelation nineteen, not Revelation twenty one. He uses that term a lot in Matthew twenty four and twenty five. The end of the age is when he comes back and ends history on God's terms, visibly, undeniably, supernaturally. It's happening. Get excited. And the reapers are angels. For just as the tares, the weeds are gathered up and burned with fire, so it'll be at the end of the age. Sheep and goat, he uses that analogy in Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus does. Son of man will send forth his angels, they'll gather up all his kingdom, including the stumbling blocks and those who committed lawlessness, who rejected his grace, did not receive him, and they'll throw them into a furnace of fire in that place where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But then the righteous, and that's going to be your standing, not you on your worst day as a Christian. So Betty's going to be there, Blanche is going to be there, Hey, if Betty and Blanche are going to be there, you want to be there too. But even better, Jesus is going to be there. And watch this. The righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear, get excited, and get after it now to contribute to that happening. Okay? Those are the first two uh, parables. Whoops. Wrong slide. Uh, we're talking about the uh, sower and the wheat and the weeds. The wheat of the weeds says... The kingdom of God on earth will be characterized by a worldwide counter-sowing of faith truth, fake, not faith, along with the sowing of the truth that we saw in the first parable. But the distinction between the two teachings will be made plain by Christ himself at the second advent. So take this to heart, folks. Not every religious teacher is telling you the truth. Not every moral teacher is telling you the truth. Not every teacher of ethics is telling you the truth. Not every Christian teacher is telling you the truth. Or telling you legitimate stuff. Much less humanism, atheism, Marxism, and all those other isms that need to become wasms and will become wasms at the second advent. Okay, that's the first set of twins. Let's look at um, the second set of twins, parables three and four, the tiny seed, mustard seed, we don't know what that is so much, and the yeast in the flour. Okay, look at verse 31. Why are we going back? Because we're kind of dealing with the structured, uh, uh, taking this in a logical, not a chronological form. Look at verse 31. He presented another parable. This is a heavenly, uh, earthly story of heavenly meaning. The kingdom of God on earth until I come back at the second advent. It's like a mustard seed, a tiny, teeny, weeny seed, the smallest seed used in agricultural Israel in the first century, which a man took and sowed in a sieve. It's so thin, it's just slightly thicker than a human hair. You can barely see individual ones. But it can the, the plant it, it, it produces grows fairly rapidly and can get as high as 12 or, or feet or higher. It can become so strong that birds, in a good way, can actually, uh, mamas can make their nests in these uh, plants produced by these tiny mustard seeds. So they would have all known that, but we're not, I'm not that familiar with that. So the kingdom is kind of like a tiny mustard seed. It starts with very, very little and not very impressive looking seed at all. It's the smallest of all the other seeds that we use in agricultural Israel. It's not talking biologically comprehensively. But when it's full grown, it becomes larger than the garden plants, becomes a tree. 12 feet, 15 feet. So that the birds of the air can come and nest in its branches. I thought birds in the air were bad. 
you can't keep birds from flying over your head. You can't keep them from nesting in your hair. And sometimes the birds are symbol for bad, but in places like Ezekiel 17, Ezekiel 31, Psalm 104, they're used just for uh, animals. We ought to use uh, care to not to mess up their habitat. And mustard seed, mustard seeds can actually produce places where birds can lay their eggs and good things happen from that. Okay? Let's look at the next one. We'll put them together here in a second. We're looking now at uh, not the mustard seed or the tiny seed. Let's look at the yeast in the flour. Now, I know you've heard leaven represents sin in the Old Testament, and yes, in many cases it does, but not here. Uh, the MacArthur Study Bible does a nice comment about that. I'll say more about that in a minute. And he spoke another parable of them. The kingdom of heaven, until I come back, second advent, here on the earth, is like leaven, let's call that yeast, same thing, which woman took and hid, that doesn't mean maliciously hiding, but puts deep into the dough so you can't really tell the yeast is in there. It's not, you can't see it with your eyes. That's what it means. In three pecks of flour, too, it's all leavened. Okay? Uh, and yeah, but again, some of you are saying, well, leaven, leaven's always bad, isn't it? Lion. Not like lion, Ted, L-Y-I-N-G, but lion, L-I-O-N. Is lion used symbol, symbolically in the Bible? Say yes. There's a lion... Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Is that a symbol used for in a good way? For something is the ultimate perfect person? Yeah. So lion always is used to symbolize good people. Jesus or other good people, right? What's first Peter five say? About the lion. Satan prowls like see symbols mean what they mean in context. And if you're going to always assume that a symbol used one way, even if it's 90% of the time, always means that, you're going to miss the point. Here the Lord is clearly using this as just something you can't see, but it is the power that causes this dough to rise into bread kind of thing. So the tiny seed is saying, uh, the mustard seed that starts so small you can hardly see it and you grow, you put it in the plant and water a little bit and it grows up to 12 feet pretty quickly and you got birds in it, which is a good thing. I mean, that's twice as tall as I am. I'm six foot tall, right? I'm getting shorter all the time. That happens to you when you carry a heavy rivalry study Bible with you all the time. Sydney, it just, it just wears you out, you know, over a period of time. Uh, kingdom of God on earth will grow from a handful into billions. According to religious study scholars who aren't always right on such thing, 2.1 billion, that's a thousand million people embrace Christianity. Are they all regenerate? I doubt it. In fact, I'm quite sure they're not all regenerate, but that's the number we'll use just for comparison. They're like 7.4 billion in the world. We're about one third of the world population, visible Christendom. Now, how many did you start with? How many showed up for the crucifixion? John trickles in at the end. You got to give him credit for that. It's several women, bless their hearts. It's always been women's purity, motivation, um, integrity, uh, spiritual passion, that's driven the Christian church. Um, and it always has been uh, from day one. That It just got women, a few women at the cross, and then John trickles in. You, you wouldn't look at that and say, this is going to be the start of a victorious uh, theological, theological system that fulfills the Old Testament and is going to climax when Jesus conquers the world supernaturally, undeniably. You wouldn't think that. You wouldn't think he's the all-powerful creator God in human, human form when he's dying there. He looks weak. And guilty, frankly, to the human eye. And you've only got five or six women and John. 
You got at the most seven people, and now it's 2.1 billion people. That's what he's talking about. This is going to start small, but it's going to go. Listen, you look at Western culture, Europe, and the United States, doesn't look like that we're the one group you can publicly denounce and there's no hate crime. Okay? Don't say anything negative about Islam. Okay? Because you're a horrible person. But say whatever you want to about Christians, it's fine. Am I too sensitive about that? It's just the way it is. Don't look to the United States. Look to Africa and South America. There are huge revivals happening. I mean, thousands of people are coming to faith every day across the continent of Africa, across South America. Okay, South Korea, according to surveys that religious studies scholars have, do 49% of the population, not of North Korea, South Korea, are evangelical Christians. Okay? So, yeah, this billions of people is big, and it started from a very small, seemingly insignificant number. The East and the Flower is saying the kingdom of God on, uh, on the earth until Jesus comes back is going to grow and manifest itself, not because the certain pastors look cool and act cool and impress people, but be, by an True, internal, but invisible power source, like what drives the growth of the dough into bread, is going to be the Holy Spirit as we abide in Christ. That's important to know. We're not going to be popular, but tiny things have grown into a big thing, and you may not see it in Western culture, but it's blowing up all over the earth in a, world, in a good sense, okay? Let's go to the third set of, of parables, okay? Sower and the, and the sower and the wheat and the weeds are the big idea, but now we're getting subordinate ideas. Look at verse 44. There's the next set. We're going to look at uh, the hidden treasure and the expensive pearl. The kingdom of heaven on this earth, until Jesus comes back to end history on God's terms, is going to be like a treasure hidden in the field. The Jewish people in the field of the world it spread all over the earth since 70 A.D., Although they came back to Israel in 1948, there's about 6.5 million Jews living in Israel right now. There's about 7 million Jews living everywhere else. There are more Jews living outside of Israel than living in Israel. It's it's a small number. It's 0.2% of the world population, but it's it's viable, and it's the only thing like that that's lasted that long, and it'll last until Jesus comes back and beyond. But that's the treasure he's talking about. We'll say more about it in a minute. Which a man found and hid... Again, and from joy, there's that joy, again, buys it, sells everything he's got to buy the field as his special possession. He gives the highest price he could probably, probably, possibly give to redeem, regenerate Israel. Then let's look at the pearl of great price, everybody calls it, but I just call it the uh, expensive pearl from the sea. How about that? Again, in a similar way, here's a, a, this, the second twin, second set of the twins here. The kingdom of heaven until Jesus comes back. The kingdom of heaven on earth. What God's doing on earth until Jesus comes back is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one, where do you get pearls from? You get them from the sea, from the ocean, right? He went and sold everything and paid an incredible price. What's the highest price? How do you know what you're worth? How do you know what anything's worth? What somebody's willing to pay for it? What was God willing to pay for Savannah Bowers? God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were sinners. Christ, Christ died for Savannah before, before she committed any sin. Okay? How many of her sins were future when Christ died? How many of her sins were future when Christ died? All of them. How many did he pay for on the cross? All of them. How many are forgiven when you trust him for it? All the ones he paid for, which is all of them. Salvation is not probation. 
It's salvation. It's not wipe the plate clean and do the best you can. It's wipe the slate clean and throw it away and give you a plus R in your legal standing and now walk consistently with it and you're not saved by doing stuff for God, but salvation is supposed to be expressed by you doing all kinds of good, good works so you don't notice how great you are because you're doing it for him whether anybody else notices or not. When they notice, it's nice, but it's not necessary. That kind of thing. Yeah, notice here, uh, Deuteronomy 26.18 describes the Jewish people as God's treasure. Uh, and you might say, well, I don't know that. Well, trust me. Uh, Deuteronomy is the most cited Old Testament book by Jesus, and uh, they all knew Deuteronomy backward and forward just from going to synagogue because they actually did expository preaching back then in those days. Uh, but uh, Deuteronomy 26, 18 says, The Lord, that's the covenant name for God, the salvation name for God, has declared you, and that's plural in the, in the Hebrew, all y'all, talking about the Jews, uh, to be his people as a treasured possession. I think that was in the Lord's mind. Again, I don't expect you to know that. I didn't know that until I looked it up, but the audience would have probably known that. A lot of them would have. And then the expensive pearl from the sea, you always get pearls from the sea, not, you know, just lying or lying along, you know, in a forest somewhere. The sea is often a figurative way to refer to Gentile, non-Jewish nations. Now, who are the Jews? They're the physical uh, uh, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to whom were given special promises as the basis for the whole biblical story, pointing to Christ. But in the Old Testament, we've got spirituality with training wheels. We're looking forward to a provided Savior. Now, on the New Testament side of the ledger, we're looking back at the provided Savior, waiting for the second coming, and living consistently with that, right? So, the hidden treasure, the kingdom of God on earth, will see the blessed effects of the incredible Christ. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift uh, paid on the cross for human redemption with an emphasis on the Jews. Emphasis on the Jews? I'm a Gentile. I don't like that. A, get over it. B, Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God and salvation to the Jew first. They had the Old Testament canon, but also to the Greeks, which means all the non-Jews. So, and I'm a Messianic Jew that happens to be a Gentile. I would say that in Israel. I guess big laughs with the Israelis think it's funny, but nobody here gets it. But uh, pearl of great price, the expensive pearl, king of God on earth, will see the work of Christ joining Jews and Gentiles together as he saves Gentiles just as they are, which was a hard thing for the apostles to understand, Anthony. Right after the, with, with years after Christ had finished his thing, the, the apostles apparently still thought that because Jesus was the Jewish Savior, Gentiles had to become Jews, and then they could believe and be saved. So Peter didn't want to go to Cornelius' house until God just basically pushed him and said, what I call clean, don't call unclean anymore. These people can be saved just as they are, but God doesn't leave you like that. He gives you a whole capacity to do the right thing now as the fruit of your salvation. Wow. We are being oriented to spiritual reality. This is exactly where we all live. Now let's look at the fourth and final pairs of twins. Look at verse 47, and we'll look at the dragnet. Now I'm so old. Hey, Ken, I'm so old. I hear dragnet. You know the first thing I think about? Dun, da, da, dun, da, dun, da, da. Did any of you under 40 ever see that? And James is a expert on all culture in the 60s and stuff. Sergeant Joe Friday. Bad 714, which was the number of home runs Babe Ruth hit, which I always thought that was pretty cool. I don't know if that was on purpose or not. I don't think it was a real badge. I don't think he was really in, uh, 
What was the actor's name that played Joe Friday? Jack Webb, yeah. So when I he's a drag that, I think of that, okay? Which is, you've got to, Tim, you've got to understand the Bible in the context in which it's written. So if you a drag that, I know that. That was my favorite TV show. That's not what he's talking about. Trust me, okay? Dragnet was a round net that had little lead weights all around the edges and a piece of sponge in the middle. And we'll see, typically, during our tour of Israel, we'll, we'll get on a boat, go across the Sea of Galilee, and typically the guys that do that are also part-time commercial fishermen. And if the Israeli guide or the Bible teacher guy insists, and sometimes it takes like 10 bucks, which you don't have to pay for. I, get a, I have a lot of expenses you don't have, okay? <laughs> They will actually get their, their, their dragnet out and they'll throw it out. It's kind of like a cowboy being able to do a lariat. You can't do it right the first time, but they throw it out and it stays circular, goes down and goes straight down because of the weights. But then you have a dome effect. So anything under it, dumb fish, you know, they're too stupid to just get out of the way. They'll be caught, Jason, but then you gotta separate them because you got the good ones and the bad ones and stuff like that. So again, they would have known exactly what he's talking about here. We're not so much used to that unless we're commercial fishermen using first century fishing techniques, which most of us probably aren't. Also, when you think of fishermen, there's nothing. There's nothing better than going fishing. Am I right? When they're fishing, they're at work, man. Remember what Bob said? The fishing is always good. Sometimes the catching isn't so good. I mean, he just loved fishing, whether he caught anything or not. These are people working for a living hard. It is a hard life, isn't it? You're doing that so that babies can eat and stuff like that. Look at verse 47. The kingdom of heaven, what God's doing on the earth until Jesus comes back, is going to in one way be like a dragnet that gets thrown into the lake and catches all kinds of stuff, good, bad, and ugly, and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up to the beach, and they sat down, and they throw the good stuff, the eatable stuff you can eat. And guess what? Under that... Uh, economic economy, Julie, you couldn't eat catfish. I'm not sure they had catfish in the Sea of Galilee, but you couldn't eat certain fish under Jewish Old Testament spiritual and training wheel kind of rules. But put the good ones in containers and the bad ones they threw away. It's going to be just like that at the end of the age. Sounds like the wheat in the weeds kind of thing. He repeats stuff. I repeat stuff. I don't apologize for repeating stuff because repetition is some other retention. Because I talk so fast and so incoherently, not everybody gets everything the first time. At the end of the age, when Christ comes back and ends history on God's terms, visibly, supernaturally, undeniably, the angels come forth, take out the wicked, the unregenerate wicked, from among the righteous, those who declare righteous through faith in Christ, and throw them into a furnace of fire, where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Look at verse 51. Now, 51 isn't a parable. It's kind of the last thing the disciples say in the midst of all these parables, Dustin. And look what happens. Jesus, knowing they're not following all this, it's going to take them a while to think through all this good stuff. Jesus says, and this is in red letter edition if you do that. Jesus says, have you, and he's talking to his disciples now, and they're all believers except for Judas, right? Have you understood all this stuff? Okay. Well, you said, you did seven whole parables. I can only remember one thing. You're supposed to dumb it down, you know? No, he didn't dumb it down. Man, it, Jesus is so mean, you know. He wants you to listen to the word of God. It's crazy. Have you understood all these things? And you know what they said? They said, they say whatever Mason, our almost two-year-old kid says, when you say, did you do X? Hey, did you pick that up? Yes. Did you jump into the ocean? Yes. You can say anything to him. He doesn't know what you're saying. If you have a question, he will say yes to anything. You can get him to sign anything. You know, he just went on his way out. Just get him to sign his house over to you. He'll do that. But I mean, you know, 
it's kind of like little kids. Some little kids learn in churches like this one. The answer to any question that your uh, teacher is going to ask you up to first or second grade is Jesus. Because even if it's wrong, you know, who built the tem- who built the temple? Jesus. Who built the wall around Jerusalem? Jesus. Well, yeah, ultimate cause, but I mean, really, it was really Solomon and Nehemiah, you know. But you never get in trouble for saying that answer, right? So they're not going to admit they don't know. He knows good and well they don't know. He's saying, you're going to have to think about this. I didn't put all our stuff on the bottom shelf for you. Uh, they said, yeah, we're, we're, we got it. We're cool. Now let's go to the last parable. Hold your applause. Uh, the second one of the fourth set of twins. Jesus said to them, therefore, every scribe who be, has become a disciple of the kingdom, who's really a believer, is like the head of a household who brings out of his treasure Things new and old. You buy a new, uh, an old house and you find all kinds of interesting things, good, bad, and ugly in the house. Sometimes it's good stuff. Now, there's a Hebraism here, and I think they understand it just, uh, scribes, by the way, were experts in the law, not just copyists. But really to understand it in our vernacular, you gotta turn it around. Every disciple of mine should be a scribe. They should really want to understand, not these, these parables, but the essence of the Word of God. Uh, so that they can really appreciate it, share it, and live it. And that's kind of what he's saying there. Okay, When he says old stuff and new stuff, what's he talking about? Well, I think, you know, obviously he's he's here anticipating this and ultimately anticipating Second Advent. But they're living, the New Testament Gospels are written in the Old Testament setting, right? Old Testament's pointing to the promises of Christ being the Lamb and ultimately the Lion, and now we're living, looking back at the Lamb mission being accomplished, waiting for the Lion. Uh, Abraham was 2000 BC. We're about 2000, a little bit more AD. God's right on schedule. But in the old, in the New Testament era, we don't stop teaching the Old Testament, but we emphasize and understand the Old Testament through a New Testament lens. In many ways, the Old te- the uh, New Testament allows you to really understand the Old Testament in its fullness, right? So, you know, I'm looking back at my pulpit ministry, 36 and a half years, at least 80% of the time, if not a little bit more, I've done New Testament. But we consistently look at Old Testament also, and always relate it back to that. Okay, let's sum up those last two. The dragnet is saying the kingdom of God on earth until Jesus comes will climax when Jesus comes, and will involve a separation of believers from unbelievers, and house owners saying the kingdom of God will be characterized by believers living and learning both new and old truth. And as J. Dwight Pentecost said, when you talk about new and old, you're talking about simple as opposed to complex. What's the newest truth about numbers you learn in uh, elementary school? We call that arithmetic, right? That's old stuff when you're in middle school starting to learn algebra. And then when you learn trigonometry, then you learn calculus. That's the new and old is simple, complex. And you look at scripture, there's some things so simple a little kid can understand it, like the gospel. If your gospel is so complicated, a little kid can't understand it, it's more complicated than Jesus thought it was. And that's not a good thing. So what have we looked at? We've looked at a lot of good stuff here. Now I could have done an eight week message on those parables, but I'd rather kind of give you a sweep. So now in theory you can read back over this and essentially know what it means, then you go from there. I'm just kind of softening up the soil for you. But you might say, what's the relationship of those Three subset of parables. I would say the tiny seed and the yeast is talking about what is going to happen growth-wise from just a handful, seven people at the cross to 2.1 billion right now. Most of it growing rapidly in Africa and South America. Uh, what and how it's going to grow. It's going to grow by 
the power of the spirit, not by the promotion of uh, religious entrepreneurs in the United States, although uh, you can cro- draw a crowd that way. The second set of subordinate parables, hidden treasure, expensive pearl, is talking about God's grace in redeeming Jew and Gentile through faith in the work and the merits of Jesus Christ. And then the dragnet and the house owner is just saying, this is so great. You know, Gene never got over being saved. Some of us have gotten way too comfortable with this. And, you know, we're grading God on the curve based on whether or not we're happy with our, all of our circumstances this afternoon. That's not a wise way to look at life, you know, just, it doesn't jive what Jesus teaches here. Get after it. The coaches, I know Ken is too good of a mathematician to ever told his basketball teams, you gotta give 110%, but all the coaches say that, which technically is impossible. But uh, you know what that means, right, Dustin? Take this to heart. So much we could say, I'm gonna summarize it real quick with a couple of principles consistent with this truth. Spiritual fitness is a lot like, and I use parallel lines, parables, parallel lines, right? Spiritual fitness is a lot like physical fitness. It's not easy to get. It's harder to maintain. And it's got to be a lifestyle, not a hobby. You're, you're never going to get physically fit by working out once a week or once a month. Uh, here's a guy goes to the doctor. He's not in good shape. Uh, the doctor tells him one thing he should do. Improve his diet. The guy, the patient says, don't tell me to improve my diet. I ate a carrot once and nothing happened. That's not fair. You didn't give it a fair shot. Well, I got the medicine you gave me. Shana got the medicine, but you didn't open the, you got, you got to open it and take the medicine. You don't just shake it, you know. Uh, Mason found my little ball of aspirin and was just shaking it like a, what do you call those things they use in Mexico? Maraca, you know. And you know what? His, his uh, aunt, Karen, was here, bought him a bunch of toys. He didn't want anything with the toys. He wanted that that little from this. I get my aspirin from the Dollar Tree. I'm not going to I'm not going to Walmart and paying one twenty five. I get mine for a dollar even, you know. But he thought that was the greatest thing since popcorn. But you gotta you gotta take the medicine. I mean, it's, it's not easy. It involves a biblical worldview lived out consistently. One reason you come to a church like this is so you got people that all pull in the same direction. They're going to encourage you when you need it. And uh, I realize many Sundays you probably get more out of the interaction before and after church than you get from anything the worship team or the pastor says. And that's cool. That's all part of the deal. I'm all for that. Uh, spiritual fitness also demands a realistic point of view about you know little things like God, ourselves, people, the world around us. And what Jesus just taught us is foundational to that. Now, this is truth for believers. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ from the depth of your heart as your Savior, this is our invitation to you. Uh, the Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That includes you and me. The wages of sin is death, separation from God, and a place of punishment. But the free gift of God is eternal life through being a good Baptist or a good Presbyterian. The free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, but to the one who does not work, but who believes in Christ, who justifies the ungodly, that person's faith is reckoned as righteousness. Uh, that's how I like to share the gospel. You can't do much better than Bible ballistics, which is uh, Blanche and Zane on the back of their promotion card about BibleBallistics.org, which you need to go check out. They say, the ABCs of salvation with a D. Hey, agree with God, you're a sinner. You've broken the law. You ever lie, steal, uh, ever had a lustful thought? Don't follow me around. Uh, ever disrespect your parent? 
uh, boy, I hope my son is listening to this one. Ever covet, you know, breaking God's law makes you a sinner. Everybody qualifies. B, believe that Jesus' death on the cross was and is a payment for your sin. He can and will save you when you call on him. C, confess your sin to Jesus and claim his promise to save those who believe. Sounds like the thief on the cross to me. And then D, as an effect of that, develop your spiritual life through prayer, Bible reading, find a Bible-believing church. And, and Try this one first, okay? Just give it a try. Uh, be baptized as a, like a wedding ring. It doesn't save you, but it shows people you're a believer visibly. Trust God in all things. Remember his provision for you to motivate you. That's good stuff, okay? So that's our invitation. Uh, I dare to believe God cares more about your salvation than even I do. But uh, if you want some follow-up on that, you can always talk to me or James or uh, a lot of people around here. would be glad to walk you through that. But uh, the thief on the cross didn't need an, uh, uh, a commitment counselor. Uh, there's a church I go to a couple of times a year where the guy does not ever share the gospel. He just says, if you want to be saved today, you can talk to Joe or Helen. They're commitment counselors. I'm too busy to get into that, but no, he didn't say that. But uh, right over there, go in that little closet, and that will... Sounds like the way they close timeshares to me, but I mean, that's just me. I'm not rich or famous, but I feel so much better today. I got it all out, and we're now going to close in prayer. Father, we do praise you that you are the author of history, and you've designed history, even though the world doesn't believe it and thinks it's lunatic to think this, the climax by the second coming of Jesus Christ as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And uh, help that to excite us and to motivate us. And as we read this truth that he's taught us from these parables about the fact that we're going to get out with all kinds of different reactions and the fact that some people don't react positively doesn't mean we should stop doing it. Uh, it's going to start really small. And even now, where some of our high schoolers are, depending on what sports they're playing or what groups they're in, it may look like Christianity is very small and weak, like a little thin mustard seed. And yet it's huge worldwide. It's the focus of the program of God, and we're a part of that. And we can now contribute and some score some points for the team. It doesn't depend on James or Brad, although we're catalysts. It depends on all of us kind of pulling on the oars, motivated by the ultimate victory of Jesus Christ. And so help us to uh, be motivated and purified in our a desire to contribute to your kingdom. And for anyone who's not trusted Christ alone, by your grace, by your efficacious grace, open their heart and bring them to yourself that they might, uh, from the depth of their heart, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.